Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. All right. All right, yeah. So this morning we're doing Exodus 1, and like we always do when we start a new book, I like to introduce it. So start with an easy one. If you pick up the Bible, where can you find the book of Exodus? <clears throat> Number two, that's right. Yeah, um, probably more than a lot of other books, this one's not too difficult to find. You just find Genesis and then just keep going one book over. It's the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. It's also the second book in what is known as the Pentateuch. Does anybody know what the word Pentateuch means? You got it. <laughs> Penta, you probably know. Books mean scrolls or items or whatever. So five books. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Torah. These are the foundational documents of the people of Israel. The foundational story, the creation story to the covenant, the law. Does anybody know what the word Exodus means? Yeah, like that, it's come to us in English, like you can still use it, the exodus of this people group or the exodus of this thing. It literally means, if you go to the next slide, the way at, ex means out, yeah, we still use that in English, and odas means road or way. So exodus is a Greek word, which means the way out. I actually was in Greece in 2007 when I saw a road sign that said odas, and I was like, yes, that seminary education paid off. I know what that means. <laughs> Three years of my life, well spent. <laughs> um, who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses. Yeah, that's probably the right answer. Moses? The tradition says Moses wrote it. Sometimes all five of those books are kind of referred to as Moses, right? The books of Moses, the, the, uh, as we look to Moses. Books never say Moses wrote them. There's a couple problems with it, including the fact that they include the, the account of Moses' death, which is very difficult to do. Um, so maybe Moses wrote part of them, and a later editor put them in their present form, or maybe it's oral history that dates back to Moses, and it was written down much later. No one really knows for sure. The tradition is Moses, if that's helpful to you. Moses. Yeah, there you go. When was the book written? This is, uh, you can go to the next slide um, and keep going. Yeah. Uh, and one more. Yeah. Another mystery. Um, you can read whole dissertations on this. 1500 BC, 1200 BC, 900 BC, 600 BC. We know it's basically in its finished form by 500 BC, post-exile. But beyond that, it's hard to say. People have written whole dissertations on this and nobody knows for sure. But one of the things that's interesting is that the book itself actually obscures its date. Like it would have been pretty easy for an author to be like in the time of this pharaoh during this dynasty. And we go, oh, okay, we know exactly when it happens. But that's not actually how it's written. It's written with like the details kind of rounded off. And that's actually important because it tells us a little bit about the genre of the book, that it's not meant to be a strict historical account, right? This isn't like the annals that say like this thing happened in this year under this king. It's theological history. It's meant to teach us about God. It's meant to teach us how God works in this world. That doesn't mean it necessarily that like none of this happened. 
Um, the Israelites very much believe it's about God actually showing up and actually freeing slaves, not metaphorically doing so, right? They believe that it's a, a physical reality that happened, yet at the same time, it's a good reminder that we don't understand Exodus if we've memorized all the details about it, right? This isn't like reading the annals of a king. We have to understand what it's actually teaching us about God and what it means to follow God and what it means to be the people of God. And that's what the book is for. That's its purpose. That's the reason it exists. So we've got some mystery about where the book came from and who wrote it and how exactly to understand it. But one thing that's certain about Exodus, and this is super important and super interesting, wherever this story came from, it became the foundational story of the people of Israel. This is it. Exodus was the story they most repeated. It's the story they celebrated every year at Passover, right? They had a whole festival every year to remember this story. Exodus was how they understood themselves. In fact, if you search the entire Old Testament after Genesis and Exodus, you'll find like a couple, a handful of references to Adam and Eve. You'll find over 120 references to the Exodus story littered throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Like, this is it. Wherever this story came from, the people, like, this is how they knew themselves. They were the slaves who came out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. Which is funny, you know, of course, because as Christians, we tend to obsess over Adam and Eve. But the Israelites obsessed over this weird story of slaves being set free and a mighty king being thrown down and God delivering his people. So if you want to understand Israel, you have to understand Exodus. And of course, if we want to go a step further, if we want to understand Jesus, who was, of course, Jewish, you have to understand Exodus. By studying Exodus, you can come to understand things like Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt while escaping Herod's genocide of the baby boys. That sounds like Exodus, doesn't it? Or Jesus handing down a new law while being on a mountain. Sermon on the Mount. It's Exodus rehashed. Or even Jesus calling 12 disciples, like the 12 sons of Jacob, who go down into Egypt and emerge as the people of Israel. And even on this table now, we have communion, right? Which we believe is the fulfillment of Passover. So even now, even right here, Exodus. And this book is actually super important. I want to be a little bit careful this morning, but as we gear up for an election year, if you want to understand how God feels about power and leaders and armies and the poor and the marginalized, you need to read Exodus and keep this story in mind when you hear rhetoric start to fly. So Exodus is the origin story. There's kind of other points we could go to, Abraham and the covenant or the creation story. It's a little bit like Batman. There's a couple different uh, ways we could go. They don't negate each other. They're different. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right Scotty? Yeah, exactly yeah. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Scotty couldn't do the uh, comic book overlaps later. <laughs> but what's important to remember is this is like the origin story. There's like other other pieces to it, but this is the one that they told over and over. This is how they understood themselves. And this is why we study the book of Exodus. So you guys ready to dig into Exodus 1? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so that's the book of Exodus. One of the things that's important to remember when you start Exodus 1 is that there's not actually a break in the story between Genesis and Exodus. Exodus 1 presumes that you have just finished reading the book of Genesis, right? There's not actually a big chapter break in between. You don't have a little scroll uh, like Star Wars. So it's a, we should kind of recap how we got here. Um, we are, as we enter into the book of Exodus, this is my uh, summary of the book of Genesis. I was kind of proud of this slide. Um, so... If you read Genesis, you know we have a very good creation, and then humans do their best to muck it up. But into the muck, God shows up. God doesn't leave people in that mess, God, or that muck. God calls Abraham, and God begins to, it forms a covenant with Abraham, and begins to form a new family that is going to be God's vehicle for renewing the all of creation, for bringing the kingdom of God. A family that lives differently, lives by a different story, lives by a set of rules that stands apart from the rest of creation into something new. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob meanders around and has some misadventures, but eventually has 12 sons, including Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery, eventually becomes the steward of all Egypt, and there's a famine in the land of Canaan, and all of Joseph's family, 70 people, we're told, go down to Egypt to escape the famine. Got it? That's the book of Genesis? You got it? Yeah, yep, perfect. All right. And once they get to Egypt, they flourish. They are fruitful and multiply. And after some time passes, a new Pharaoh comes and the Israelites continue to grow to the point where Pharaoh says, we've got an Israelite problem. The Israelites become a hated minority group, right? They become that immigrant group that people start whispering, what are we going to do about those guys? This is a problem. They don't respect our culture. They aren't real Egyptians. They're not going to be loyal. They're dirty, lazy, and breed like rabbits. And if they keep breeding like this, they're going to rebel or replace us. Again, I don't want to put too much contemporary politics in this, but people haven't changed much in the last 3,000 years. The way they look down on unlike immigrant groups 3,000 years ago and today is pretty much the same. And it's important to remember that our ancestors are not Pharaoh and his armies, but as the Old Testament often says, remember you were slaves in Egypt. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. That's our inheritance. We should still remember that. So Pharaoh's first plan is to enslave the Israelites, right? To break their backs and their spirits. Verse 14 says, The Egyptians made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And next week we'll see it gets even worse, right? Pharaoh concocts the plan to kill off the Israelites by killing all the baby boys. And Moses is born, and after his initial attempt to end injustice fails, he flees off into the desert, and Israel is left alone in her suffering. And what comes next, I'm jumping ahead to chapter 2, but I think this is kind of a thesis statement for, for this book, is Exodus 2, 23 to 25. One more. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. 
and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That phraseology doesn't necessarily hit it. God was concerned about them. God understood. God knew. God had respect unto them. God comes near. They cry out in their slavery, in their suffering, and God comes near. So Scotty would say, if you take nothing else from this morning, take this. God hears the cries of the oppressed. God hears the cries of the lonely and lowly. God hears the cries of the brokenhearted. When injustice cries out, God hears. And God does not remain far off, but God enters in. Amen? So this is not a new assertion in Scripture. If we go back to Cain and Abel, when Cain kills his brother Abel, it says this. God says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God hears. We have the story of Hagar, the Egyptian slave, who was coerced to bear Sarah's child and then abused for it. And when she flees into the desert, God shows up and says this. You will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means God hears. Second Chronicles 7.14, which is speaking about the exile in Babylon, when the people are lowly and they're suffering in exile. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Even the Ninevites, the vicious Assyrian Empire, right? When they make themselves lowly and declare, they declare, this is the decree that goes out in the book of Jonah, that everyone should urgently cry out to God. God shows up. And as Jesus famously said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the lowly, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. God hears the cries of the oppressed. God hears the cries of the lowly and the brokenhearted. God hears those who have been humbled. When injustice cries out to God, God hears. And when we cry out to God, God hears. Amen? So when was the last time you cried out to God? This morning? Good! I imagine many of us are overdue, right? Like, actually cried out to God. Not like, God, and maybe if you want, maybe you could come do something. But like a legit, like, 
go, you know, to go full David on it, right? To go Psalms on it. Like, God, where are you? God, what's going on? God, what, what am I supposed to do? God, I've got nothing left. God, I'm at the end of my rope. God, I can't solve this. God, I am brokenhearted. When was the last time you did one of those prayers? My experience says I don't do it enough. I don't know about you. I could say we don't do it enough. I presume everyone's kind of in it with me. Maybe some of us are better at this than others. It's easier to just kind of like do the anxious rumination thing, right? Like, ah, there's like a vague problem, but it's probably not a big deal. So I'm just going to kind of let it sit there all the time on top of me and not do anything about it, but also feel bad about it and like not talk about it, which does nothing. What if instead of anxious rumination, we cried out to God, God, what do you want me to do? Our issues might seem petty or small, but the point of the incarnation is that God cares about petty and small. And the reality is you kind of have to go through it to get over it. And often petty and small is the things we're carrying around that make us punish other people and act badly towards other people and mess up all our social situations. So even in the petty and small, what would it look like to just be like, God, I'm so frustrated by the dishes (laughs) or whatever it is. And the big things, right? Financial collapse or career setbacks or big breakups or real losses or when we are actually on the wrong side of injustice, right? For me, the temptation with real pain is escapism. To just flee into media or some physical, you know, food or alcohol or consumption, whatever it is. Or just hide under a blanket, you know. None of which do much to solve the issue. And the big thing is, what would it look like to cry out to God? My experience says that when we do that, I almost think of it like physically, it's like we like empty ourselves, right? There's this like vomiting of yourself and it like opens up a space within us that God fills. That when we actually get to that place where we're just empty of ourselves, right? We're just at the end of our rope. We just, there's not us still in the way. That ego, that, that God shows up. God meets us in that place. It's funny, I was already chewing on the sermon and Kelly came to book club last week and talked about doing this exact thing and just that sense of crying out to God and God meets us there. Have you experienced that? I think a lot of times you need to just kind of vomit it all out, right? <laughs> like, like almost that feeling you get when you just get the stomach flu. And it's like, nope, it's all gone. Like you get it all out. And then you're like this blank pile for God to show up and begin to do something new. It's 
We'll see in Exodus, God actually has a plan to free the people, right? It's not just spiritual comfort. And we'll get there. But I think this is actually a pretty critical step one. I think when you find yourself in pain, you should cry out to God first before you make any plans. And after you've emptied yourself and let the Holy Spirit come, then you can begin to plan with new eyes and in the power of God, not driven by your pain or your anxiety. Right? You're not making choices and decisions based on how, pain, how much pain you're feeling or how anxious you're feeling. And on a social level, when we work for justice, when we experience injustice, right? if we don't cry out to God first, I think it's a little too easy to pull out the sword and just start lopping off some heads and thinking we're going to make a just world by doing that. Which is actually what Moses does, right? We're going to see that in the next chapter. Like Moses' first response to injustice is to lop off some heads. And it doesn't go well. And hopefully, metaphorically, we probably have all experienced that, though, right? Like, you experience pain, and what do you want to do? You want to, yeah, you want, to, you want to make it right. You want to do something. You want to set this thing right. So you're going to go lop off some heads, which is a fairer response, not the response of Israel. We see this in the truly great reformers, right? They're not actually people of great anger. They tend to be people of great imagination, great perseverance, great vision, great love. People that can walk in a power greater than themselves and see something beyond the circumstances right in front of them. And I don't think those things come when we're just dwelling in anger and bitterness. They grow in us when we cry out to God, empty ourselves and make room for God to show up. And don't hear me wrong. This is not saying that anger is wrong. It's actually saying that anger might be entirely right. But you need to give it to God first before you start making plans. God can shape it. God can form it. God can put it into his great love and into his redemption and into the metric of the cross rather than the metric of the sword. So whatever you're going through, whether it's the most petty thing or it's deep societal injustice, I think this calling is the same. Cry out to God. Give it to God. Empty yourself. And God hears. God hears. God hears the cries of the lowly and the broken. God hears your heartbreak, and God will come. Amen? Amen. And of course, this can't just be a personal ethic. Exodus isn't the story of an individual dealing with themselves, but an enslaved people and a king who thinks he's God. And when an enslaved people and a king who thinks he's God are at odds with each other, where does God stand? with the lowly, with the slaves, with the oppressed. God stands with the marginalized, the broken, and those pushed to the edges. And if we doubt this, we see it in Jesus, right? The incarnation of God. And when God shows up to walk the earth, he doesn't hang out with Herod or the high priest, but with the sinners and the lowly and those excluded. Jesus even praises Samaritans, right? 
who are the like dirty, lazy immigrant group that everyone hates. Again, people don't change. This is the every generation you can find that. Jesus hangs out with sex workers and eunuchs. He hangs out with mentally ill people chained up in graveyards. Like that happens, right? Jesus hangs out with women with menstrual problems. Jesus hangs out with the powerless, the lowly, those who can do nothing but cry out to God. These are Jesus' people. So in every way that applies to you, first of all, know that God sees you. Whatever ways you have found yourself marginalized, excluded, kept off the list of the good and proper and powerful, Jesus is there with you. Jesus likes you, right? Jesus doesn't just come and like give a blessing to the sex workers. He says, let's have dinner. Jesus celebrates you. Jesus himself was marginalized and maligned and killed unjustly. He's in it with us. This can take some work to take those areas in our life that we've always been told are a problem and let God come into those spaces. Take some works to believe that we could actually be loved in those things and in those spaces. And it takes some work to believe that actually those who have been on the wrong side of power might actually be closer to the gospel, might actually be closer to the kingdom of God. So in any way that you have been pushed to the outside, God sees you there. God is in it with you. Maybe you just need that comfort, but I actually think God can use you. That those things can actually be tremendous assets to be used by the kingdom of God. And lastly, this view has to push us out. As Christians, we are called to throw in our lot, like Jesus, with the marginalized. And in my experience, while this can seem like some social justice chore, when I spend legitimate social time and form real relationships with people on the margins, I come close to the heart of God. It's not actually a chore. It's not actually something I have to do. It's not a political ethic. It's love your neighbor. And when we do that, I, I really do find that we find the heart of the gospel. We find the heart of God in those places. In fact, if the gospel is feeling a little stale to you, look at your social life. Does it overlap with those on the margins? Do you have any real relationship with those who are poor in any sense of that word? 
Do you know folks who are on the outside? Again, the calling's not to be savior, but kinship. To walk with, to learn from, to be bound up in their struggle. To sit together in their pain. To not be there to try and fix everything, but to cry out to God with them and to let God come. Again, I don't want this to be a guilt trip. If anything, it's a calling to go with curiosity and awe and find the spaces where God is at work in this world and enjoy to get out to the margins, the highways and the byways. And don't start a nonprofit to like fix the highways, right? Like have dinner, share life, laugh, be together, throw in your lot, stand with those that are low. honestly believe that if we do that God will meet you there you guys experience that when you get out to the margins and you and you sit and you're with God will meet you there you will meet God in those spaces so if your faith is stale get to the margins and make friends with the lowly and there you'll meet God amen Okay. To the wrap up. As Christians, we're always tempted by Pharaoh, right? If we just had a Pharaoh, then we could really get some stuff done. If we just had a Pharaoh, we could have a good, proper, godly nation. If we just had a Pharaoh, we could get rid of crime and get rid of those dirty immigrants. This isn't a new temptation. We see it throughout the book. The Old Testament, Israel is constantly tempted by this. The early Christians are tempted by this. If we just lopped off a couple heads, we'd make a right society. When we're tempted to think this way, come back to Exodus. Remember that we are not inheritors of Pharaoh's story. We are not inheritors of a story of great kings and great empires. We are inheritors of a story of Pharaoh going into the Red Sea, of Nebuchadnezzar eating grass, of the king of Assyria sitting in the dirt, and Rome falling like Babylon. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. We are not inheritors of a powerful people putting, power, putting people in their place. We are heirs of the story of the powerless crying out and creating space for God to come and make all things new. Amen? So this is our calling. To cry out to God. To stand with the lowly. To remember... That when we cry out to God, when we sit with those that cry out to God, God does not sit on the sidelines. This story's going to get real interesting. You're right, Kyle. We start in a dark place, but God's going to show up. But it begins here, crying out to God. God hears the cries of the oppressed, and God comes. Amen? To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.